Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, with the arrival of Joe's former partner, Jared Ross, came questions as to the real purpose for his visit. Nursing a potential career-ending injury, Jared sought Joe out for his advice and emotional support regarding a possible life-changing surgery. It wasn't long before Jared realized that Joe was as much in need of his support as Jared was of Joe's. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work. Written by Charles and Ellen Carter. Narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Laura, I'm glad you can make it. I know you must be busy trying to get your gift shop ready for the holidays, Joe said. Actually, I'm just finishing the inventory, Laura replied. Laura owns the only gift shop in town. She stays pretty busy, Joe explained. As he was saying this, a woman with a willowy figure, reminiscent of a former ballroom dancer, perfectly coiffed white hair, and a puzzled look on her still attractive but aging face approached their table. Sheriff, you left a message on my answering machine that you wanted to speak with me? Mrs. Taylor, it's so nice to see you. I'm glad you got my message. Have you rented out your cottage yet? Anne watched as the woman stared at Joe for a moment. I've had a few offers, but I haven't decided yet. What is this about? My friend here, Detective Ross, is looking for a place to stay. Well, there's the hotel. No, he needs a place for about two weeks. Mm, no, no, I wanted to rent that cottage out for at least a month. Could you make an exception as a favor to me, Joe asked. Mrs. Taylor paused and thought for a moment. I'll tell you what, Sheriff. I'd be willing to rent it out for a month for 1200 I usually get more than that. After all, it's almost hunting season. But as long as he keeps the place neat and doesn't destroy it like some of those hunters do each season... I would be willing to take less. Sheriff, I swear to you, it takes me days to clean up after them. I would treat it like my own, Mrs. Taylor, Jared responded. I'm sure you would. You seem like a nice young man, she said with a thin smile. Well, then with less wear and tear on the property and without all those beer cans to clean up, I'd probably be saving myself some money. But I'd have to get that $1,200 paid in advance, Mrs. Taylor said warily, one eyebrow arched. Is that going to be a problem? Jared glanced at Joe. Joe nodded his head, and then Jared replied, No, not at all. Would you like it now? No, that won't be necessary. 
You can give me the check the day you move in. Of course, that includes all the utilities, too. That's very reasonable, Jared replied with a warm smile. All right, then, just give me until tomorrow to spruce it up a bit and turn on the utilities, and then you can move right in. So how do you know our sheriff? He and I were partners on the force. We worked together in the city. Oh, was he any good? She said with a smug little smile. Jared glanced at Joe before replying. I always felt he was one of the best. Oh? Her smile grew broader. Well, like I said, just give me a day to spruce it up and you can move right in. Mrs. Taylor turned to go and bumped into Richard Harbinger. Good Lord, Richard, she said, genuinely surprised. You're going to get yourself run over sneaking up on a person like that. My apologies, Minerva, Harbinger replied. Sheriff? What can I do for you, Richard? I'd like to know what you're doing about the Dalton girl. Do you have any suspects? Richard, I can't discuss it. You can't discuss it? Richard Harbinger's face flushed red. Sheriff, I'll have you know that this whole thing has people in this town nervous. Nothing like this has ever happened in Grover's Notch. I'm well aware of that, Richard. As a concerned citizen, I like to keep abreast of situations that impact on this town. When I have something to say, Richard, I'll let everyone in town know. Richard Harbinger pulled his mouth into a tight, hard line. Very well, I'll be waiting. But understand, I'm not going to be kept waiting long, and neither is anyone else. Enjoy your dinner, Sheriff, Harbinger said through clenched teeth. Thank you, Richard. I'm sure I will. Ladies, Harbinger said with a polite nod. Sir, Harbinger said curtly, looking in Jared's direction. He turned quickly and left. I don't like that man, Anne whispered. He thinks he's so important. He's just a used car salesman. No, let us be politically correct, Anne. He sells previously owned cars, Laura said with an air of disgust. The way he's been acting around town, you'd think he won the election for sheriff instead of Joe, Anne said. Do I hear a little bit of animosity? Joe asked, his face expressionless. After all, he's just a concerned citizen. Jared knew that look. He knew that something was wrong. Concerned citizen? Was he a concerned citizen when he sold Emma Paris that Jeep with a bad master cylinder that ended up giving out on that hairpin turn up on Jessup Mountain Road and killing her daughter and putting her in the state mental hospital? Laura, it was never proven that Harbinger knew anything about that. His inspection records showed no signs that there was anything wrong with the master cylinder, Joe said with a grimace. Emma only had the Jeep a month before it happened, Joe, Laura replied. That still doesn't prove that the master cylinder was bad when she bought it, Joe replied quietly. His own mechanic said he had to replace brake fluid before she picked it up. Why was it losing brake fluid if the master cylinder wasn't shot, Laura persisted. The state police went over the car and they told me they couldn't give me a definitive answer. Why don't we change the subject? I, for one, do not want to lose my appetite, Joe replied. Their table grew quiet. The lulling conversation drew their attention to the picture window abutting their table. On the village green's acre of closely cropped lawn were scatterings of sugar maples. These silent, old, gnarled centenarians with their twisted naked branches were the source of the leaves on the green. The sodium vapor lamps that dotted the green created an eerie stage light, 
as the north wind whipped the vibrantly colored leaves up into the air and spun them around in tight circles across the green. The four of them watched, silent, enthralled by the way the wind drove the leaves, herded them aloft as if they were alive, one moment crowded, jostling one another for position, and in the next, forced to the ground, skittering across the lawn, a rush of brilliant color subject to the wind's whimsy. An attractive woman with blonde hair and bright red lips, a well-proportioned figure and shapely legs, appeared at their table as if from nowhere, distracting them from nature's strange but colorful show. Weird, huh? I've never seen anything like that before, the young woman whispered and watched for a few moments. Sally, hey Sally, over here, Sally. The voice came from a man three tables away. He was snapping his fingers in the air in an annoying manner. Oh no, tell me that's not Ron Calvin, Sally said in a husky whisper as she leaned her body forward toward Anne. He's such a jerk. Jared watched as Anne peeked around Sally's seductive frame at the man making the commotion. Mm-hmm, I'm afraid that's just who it is, Sally. He and Lila Barron are sitting three tables away. Is Lila dating Ron? Anne asked a note of surprise in her voice. Lila and Ron? Laura repeated in a low voice. Why would she ever date him? Sally leaned even further forward and dropped her voice to a soft whisper. She's been going out with him for the last few months. Believe me, it's not serious. She knows he's just the biggest jerk, but there aren't many available men in this town, Sally said, glancing at Jared and smiling as she made this last comment. Lila's going places at the bank. I've heard she's being considered for branch manager. It's about time, too. She's been there for eight years. She's really smart, good with figures. If she'd only take the chance and leave this place, I'm sure she could really make it big. I don't know why in heaven's name she and Ron are here tonight. They usually go to the Lion's Head Bar for drinks and a burger on Mondays and Thursday nights. But there are a lot of people here tonight. I've never seen it so crowded on a Thursday, Sally said as she glanced over her shoulder, smiled, and waved at Ron. Be there in a minute, hon she called. Then she turned back around to face Joe, Jared, Anne, and Laura. I know for certain that if Lila would just buy a one-way ticket out of Grover's Notch, she would certainly have a better chance of finding someone more interesting than Ron Calvin. As a matter of fact, I was in the bank the other day and I was talking to Lila. She was excited because she had just found out that Drew Marsh, you remember Drew, don't you, Anne? He moved out of town to California after graduation and became a big shot for some company out there. I can't remember the name of the firm, but he's doing really well. Sure, I remember him. He was nice looking. That's the one. Anyway, Lila got a call from Drew. He told her that he was coming back to town and thought he might want to see some of his old friends. Lila was just thrilled. I bet that's why Ron has her here tonight, Sally said, as if the proverbial light went on in her head. He must have found out that Drew was coming back to town. He probably figured if he spent some money on a nice dinner and maybe a movie, he'd improve his chances when the competition arrives. Jared glanced at the woman sitting next to Ron. She was in her late twenties, slender, willowy, not an altogether unattractive face, but even from where he was sitting, Jared could tell that Lila wore too much makeup. More like a mask than makeup, Jared decided. Don't look too long at Lila, handsome, or Ron might feel that he has to come over here and ask you why you're looking at his girl, Sally whispered. Jared glanced up, 
the nearness of her voice had taken him by surprise. Sally now stood so near to Jared that he could feel the warmth from her body. She was looking down at him. They held each other's gaze for a brief moment. He flashed her his classic disarming smile, and she responded with a flirtatious smile of her own. Sally, I didn't realize you had switched to the evening shift, Anne said. Sally slowly turned away from Jared. I haven't, but when Cecil called and asked me if I could help him out by working tutor's shift, I told him sure. You know, it's weird. It seems like everyone in town is here. It's a shame that it takes a tragedy like her daughter's murder to bring people together, Sally said, leaning her body weight against the table and placing her left hand on the tablecloth. Jared noticed a wedding ring on her third finger. She glanced down and gave Jared another flirtatious smile and a little wink. The smile he gave her now was more reserved. If Sally noticed the difference, she didn't show it. She handed each of them a menu. Would you all like something to drink while you're deciding what to order? Sally asked, lightly brushing Jared's arm with her hip. Jared looked up at her, pursed his lips, and furrowed his brow, as if in deep thought, and said almost immediately, I'll have a beer. Beer sounds good to me, Joe said. Laura and Anne agreed. Four beers it is, then. I'll be right back, Sally said with a quick smile as she turned to negotiate the closely spaced tables. Jared frowned. The waitress said a little girl was murdered? Was that recent, Joe? Jared asked, hearing a puzzled note in his own voice. Jared saw the look on Joe's face. He knew from experience what the look meant. If you'd rather not talk about it, Jared added quickly. No, that's not a problem. A little girl went missing yesterday afternoon, and we found her last night. Jared saw the sadness in Joe's eyes. He remembered that case in the city. He decided not to ask any more questions. Sally appeared again, her hand balancing a tray of glasses and bottles. She set the tray on the table and placed a glass and beverage in front of each of her patrons. She leaned forward. Sheriff, do you think the crazy bastard that killed Judith killed that family up at Mirror Lake? The tables around there suddenly became strangely silent. Oh, ah. I wasn't supposed to say anything about that, Sheriff. I'm sorry, Sally said apologetically. Joe grimaced. No, you weren't. You weren't even supposed to know about it. No one was. I'll be back when you're ready to order. I'm really sorry, Sally said, excusing herself, slipping away into the crowded room. Jared sat back in his chair and looked up at the ceiling. Are those hand-hewn beams? He said in an obvious attempt to change the subject. He lowered his gaze and watched Joe's eyes squint and the muscles in his jaw tighten. He realized from what the waitress had said that Joe was dealing with more than just the death of a child. Joe's cryptic remark on the sidewalk outside of the inn now made sense to him. Yes, they are, Anne replied. I wonder how old this building is. It's so rustic, Jared continued. It's almost a hundred years old. It was built in 1910. It's been a landmark in Grover's Notch almost from the beginning, Anne responded. Jared realized that Anne's quick but seamless response was an attempt to help him change the subject and lighten the oppressive mood that had suddenly descended upon them. Oh, then you're a native? Jared asked, leaning forward. I was born here, yes. Kathy Ann Harvey turned the burner down under Tim's dinner to keep it warm. Her eyes caught sight of her distorted reflection on the surface of the shiny metal hood that hung over the kitchen range. Her feelings of unhappiness and regret served to distort the reflection even further. 
The Tim she knew before they got married was so different. He had been warm, confident, self-assured, and endowed with a charm and social grace that bordered on being what her mother had disparagingly described as smooth. But unfortunately, she had ignored her mother's repeated misgivings about Tim. Too late, she realized that her mother had been right, that Tim's grace and charm had been simply tools for manipulation. She hadn't realized that right away, of course. He had been too clever for that. He had hidden that from her until after they were married. Their married life began much as she suspected it should have, but very quickly things started to change. What should have been a honeymoon period ended abruptly. In the beginning, it seemed to be just little things that went wrong, little things that somehow always seemed to be her fault. Of course, she had tried harder to please him to do things right. But by the end of the first six months of their marriage, it seemed that everything she did displeased him. He began to treat her with contempt, a contempt that she had not deserved and one she could not understand. When she tried to talk to him to find out why, he began to lash out at her, revealing a cold, calculating temper that he had skillfully concealed from her. The charm, the grace, the warm manner that had so won her over fell away like it had been a magician's cruel illusion. Beneath, she discovered the real Tim, a cold, unforgiving man whose violent temper now ruled her very existence. She had realized too late that what she thought had been Tim's alluring charm and natural grace had been, in fact, the clever manipulations of a psychologically imbalanced individual. Eventually, his treacherous anger had turned to physical abuse. She looked again at her reflection in the shiny metal surface and gingerly traced her puffy, bruised cheek. How could she have been so blind? There must have been signs that Tim had been this way. How could she have missed them? His temper, his arrogance, his deprecating manner. How could she have missed all of that? No. No, he had concealed his darker half from her. She wasn't one of those women who subconsciously sought out abusive relationships because of something that had happened in her past or childhood. No, it wasn't her fault. Like a spider, he had spun a sticky web and caught his fly. When she could take no more of his cruel harassment, she had struggled against the web that he had constructed and had suffered his physical assaults. That had so frightened her that she had stopped her struggling. Wrongly or not, she had thought if she became more submissive, that would please him, perhaps even assuage his anger. But he hadn't gotten better, he'd gotten worse. In a desperate attempt to avoid his fits of temper, she stayed at home. She locked herself away in this house to appease him, to placate him, hoping to curb his angry outburst and his physical abuse. Of course, it hadn't worked. She had only been drawn deeper into his sticky web. She stopped seeing her parents and her friends. Devoid of all outside contact, she had unwittingly made herself his prisoner. Oh, there were no physical chains that bound her to her prison. Nothing that you could see, but they were there just the same. And he's still not satisfied. Why don't I just leave, she asked angrily. But she knew the answer. He had told her more than once that if she ever left him, he would find her. He had given her his look. He had never had to verbalize it. His implied threat was clear. With every fiber of her being, she believed he would find her and kill her. It wasn't that she was a coward. 
No coward could ever face what she had been forced to endure. No, she was just afraid of dying. She studied her reflection in the metal surface closely. She saw a woman tired, older than her 26 years, fearful, ashamed, dirty from the emotional abuse that couldn't be washed away, like the blood after the physical assaults. Her eyes were sad and lifeless. She touched her bruised, puffy cheek again. It felt dead. She felt dead inside. Where was the sparkle that used to be there, the beautiful face that had captured so much attention? Her brows were furrowed. Her mouth was set in a permanent frown from the constant mental and physical pain he had inflicted upon her. One year of marriage. It had only been one year, but it seemed like an eternity. The timer on the stove rang. She jumped. She hurriedly took the dinner rolls out and placed them in a basket that she had lined with freshly laundered napkins to keep the rolls warm. She carried them into the dining room along with a serrated knife for the chocolate cake she had baked. She placed the rolls on the table and the knife by the cake plate. She was about to turn and go back to the kitchen when she saw a glint of sunlight reflecting off of something metal in the driveway. She went to the dining room window, and pulling the curtain carefully aside, she peered out. Her heart began to pound. She caught her breath. His tan SUV was in the driveway. Tim was just sitting there, staring straight ahead. Suddenly, he looked in her direction. She quickly dropped the curtain. God, he's home sooner than I expected, she said, as she rushed back to the kitchen to get his dinner plated. And now, a preview of our next episode. A master of the art of manipulation, Tim Harvey has not only implicated former employee Greg Vivian in Judith Dalton's murder, but also made a psychological prisoner of his own wife, Kathy Ann. But unlike Kathy Ann, who suffers her abuse at her husband's hands in silence, Greg Vivian is plotting revenge. An animal is at its most ferocious when cornered, and so are people. Tim Harvey is about to find out that there's truth to that old adage. Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.